Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm going to bring in Neil Shearing, Capital Economics Chief, Emerging Markets Economist. And Neil, I want to ask you if things are really as good as they say they are. The the numbers out of Europe today, the economic confidence numbers, the best in like two decades. The data out of Europe's been good, the US as well. What about EM? So the ESI, they say ESI is at record highs, PMI is at record highs. Uh, all the news out of EM has been pretty solid too. I think the global economy is on, entering 2008 on a reasonably strong footing. Q1, I think, will be quite strong. Um the one area of concern I have at this stage is China. Some sense that China's economy is already starting to turn. This big recovery, the cyclical upswing that we saw in 2015, already starting to uh, perhaps lose a bit of steam. Uh, and I think that could be the, the big story that starts to emerge over the course of this year. How do you get a lead on what's happening in China? What are the data points that, that give you that picture, Neil? Well, the first thing is you ignore the official data. Uh, because the official data are going to tell you that the economy is remarkably stable, strong and stable. Uh, where have you heard that before? Six and a half percent, something yeah. like that. Um, we have our own activity proxy. Other companies have their own activity proxies too. We use it. We build it from the bottom up. Gives us a real-time measure of growth. It's been pretty good at tracking the cycle too. That currently puts growth at about 5% year on year, but that's already down from over 6% about six months ago. Um, our sense is it gets below 5 pretty quickly by perhaps the middle of this year and perhaps as low as 4 by the end of the year. So, Neil, the story was we got towards year end last year and the leaders kind of pumped up the economy for the annual get-together to, uh, to make things look good. And then they took the foot off the accelerator as we, co- we came towards um, New Year. Is that the reality? That's part of the story. There's, there are other things going on too. Obviously, there was a bit of, uh, before the party congress, there was a bit of policy stimulus. Um, there's been a pollution crackdown in the northeast of the uh, the country. That's weighing on the industrial sector. We've had new property controls uh, that's weighing on the construction and real estate sectors. The big story, though, the really big thing is that potential growth, trend growth in China has slowed. Uh, we've got to get Get away from the idea that China is an economy that grows at six or seven percent annually. That's just you know it's much richer now. It's got these big structural problems over capacity, over investment. You know the norm for growth is going to be about three or four percent over the over the next ten years. So before we all get um bearish about China, tell me, do they still have the capacity just to put the foot down on the accelerator again, push up the numbers, make everything seem pretty, and we all have to back off once more? Uh, they do, but the point is that you get less bang for your buck each time you do that. Uh, and what's more, each time you do that, all you're going to do is add to this ever-increasing debt pile too. I think they're they're becoming increasingly aware of this. I don't think it'll stop them doing it this time around either. I think they probably will lose some policy later this year. Um, but that comes with a bigger debt pile. It comes with financial risks. Uh, and ultimately, I think a, perhaps a much harder well, adjustment at some point further down the line. Is EM study in economics, in finance, in investment, Is it the same methods, models, and reaction functions is 10 years ago of globalization? I say this with the uh, loss of Peter Sutherland, who had so much to do with the Uruguay round. uh, To lose him was a a great loss for international economics. But are we using the same models that the late Peter Sutherland uh, knew at the Uruguay round? Or is is it a whole new calculus now? I think it's a, it's a different calculus. I mean, if you go, if you wind back 20 years, it was all about trade. It's all about the Washington Agreed. consensus, liberalization, trade yeah. liberalization, get your fiscal house in Is order, there a consensus now? Well, I think there's a consensus insofar as that's been good and developed growth, obviously, and de- so delivered growth and development. That's that's good. But 
much more emphasis now, I think, goes on the financial side. It should go on the financial side. This financial liberalisation, opening up to capital flows, huge capital inflows can create big destabilisation. Okay, but is China, there. just to go to China, Mr. Macron's there right now, are they playing... You know, with the the proverbial fair deal. I mean, Secretary Clinton, I, I've always given credit for for really emphasizing the word fair deal within her political economics. Are the is the financial flows into China on a fair? Is it a fair setup? So, so in in terms of financial flows, the capital account is pretty much closed. So you can't really get money in and out of China in the same way that you can in any other EM or indeed the US. Uh, on the trade side, obviously, there there are big issues. The currency is managed. Uh, the government picks winners. It backs them with subsidies. Um, so no, I don't think. I think you know this. This is where the Trump administration, um, I think, you know, has something to fall back on. There is there is a sense in which I don't think the, the playing well, field is level. It's almost not medieval. That's the wrong word. But how can China be a global player? How can EM have stability, word of the weekend? How can it have stability if they don't allow one of the legs of the tripod to work, which is capital flows? I mean, at this stage, that that leg of the tripod is absolutely critical. Keeping that capital control... Cut- capital account closed is absolutely critical because what happens if you open it up suddenly Chinese residents can put their money elsewhere suddenly you get this big downward pressure I think on the renminbi big capital outflows uh, and that's what could ultimately I think precipitate financial problems and financial stress in China so so the capital account being closed at the moment is absolutely critical to Beijing and that's why we're not going to get any liberalization or meaningful liberalization anytime soon well Neil Tom's question is based on the idea that they're ready even to acquire any kind of global leadership role it doesn't appear to me that they they are. Do they want one at this point? They do you want, see any signs think, that they actually th- want one? I think they do in certain areas. So one belt, one road. They're interested in kind of creating markets for particularly um, Chinese industries that have had this legacy of overcapacity, so big steel construction, finding markets for that stuff to, to go off into. They're interested in the classic trade deals. Um, and that's what we see with, with the, the uh, RCEP, the recept, the Chinese version of TPP, essentially. It's all about trade liberalization, opening up markets for China. I think they're less interested in kind of broader global leadership um, of the sort that we would think, you know, say the US or, or Europe taking on. In terms of these classic trade deals, classic trade deal to me is give and get. Uh, are they ready to give? Well, this is the question. So they're, they're, they're ready to get the the, tra- the, tra- the, the, the market access. The we all are. Tariffs, uh, uh, it's, it's about market access in China, particularly on the services side that I think that Europe in particular is very interested okay. in. And that's where we've seen a, a, a bit more reticence on, uh, on on behalf of the Chinese at this stage. Neil Shearing, always great to catch up with you. I'm Capital Economics Chief of Merck in Emerging Markets Economist. Neil Shearing alongside Tom Keane, Jonathan Ferrer. With us, Dan Tannenbaum, PwC. Daniel Tannenbaum is truly one of the nation's experts on the minutia of sanctions. Dan, I want you to go bigger to where we are on multilateral versus unilateral trade and sanctions and just international discussions. Uh, Peter Sutherland, the late, great Peter Sutherland, dying this weekend, uh, uh, was so much part of GAT and GAP, uh, GAT rather, in the Uruguay round. Is the multilateral days, are they over? 
For the moment, it seems that the multilateral days are hanging on by a thread. Um, you know, there's still multilateral efforts at bay. It's kind of the next steps of sanctions seem to be less multilateral. And I think, you know, you saw towards the end of the summer into the fall, a number of good multilateral actions with respect to North Korea. But some of the next steps that have been recommended by Ambassador Haley in the UN um, have generally fallen flat. This has included efforts to designate Chinese flagged vessels that were sending petroleum shipments to North Korea. Uh, the UN well, has generally okay. shot that down. We haven't talked about that. So let's. There, there are boats out there in the stormy winter Pacific. And the Chinese are sending, is it illegal oil? So it's not. There are... It's not illegal. It's not illegal entirely. There have been certain restrictions that were in place around North Korea um, oil shipments, uh, but they're not 100% embargoes. So on Friday, actually, China tightened energy supply limits to North Korea. Beijing said it would limit exports of crude oil and refined petroleum to the north. Previous restrictions didn't apply to crude oil, um, which makes up the bulk of China's energy options that are sent to North Korea. So this is very, very new. It only went into effect on Friday. Um, What you'll likely hear out of the Trump administration, though, is to the Chinese government, especially with some of the tensions and the CFIUS deals that have fallen short or CFIUS approvals that have fallen short, is prove it. Prove that the sanctions are actually being enforced effectively. (laughs) So this is a critical question. When you hear the media and the politicians talk about your world, is it informed? Depends on who is talking about it. I think, again, it's very easy to look at sanctions and say we're not doing business with X country. But as you know, it's a lot more nuanced than that. It's a lot more complicated in terms of what you can and cannot do. I mean, the short answer, and this is the easiest talking points, is there's no 100% embargo on anyone. There's always something that's carved out. Now, whether everyone needs to know about this minutia or leave it to people like me who dwell over all this stuff is a different issue, but it's complicated. It's gotten more complicated. It used to be, if you look at Cuba, we're not doing business with Cuba. That was yep. largely true. Today, there's no program that's quite akin to that. Just under a week ago, we were at the Eurasia Group. We did the whole radio program from there with Ian Bremer, the founder-in-chief of the Eurasia Group. And in their report for risks this year, they talked about global institutions and the erosion of global institutions. And you mentioned the UN. What is the United States' place in the UN right now? And how do they get the other permanent veto-holding members, the likes of China, Russia, France, and, and the UK, to come along with them? I think at the moment, we're perceived as just another voice at the table rather than a leading voice. I think there's been enough discussions where we've been potentially perceived to be on the wrong side of the issue. That's um, degrading our position in the UN. The challenge especially, and if you look at North Korea, where the UN has been somewhat helpful in trying to create arbitrage and restricting North Korean business, is the next step that we have is more larger institutions, especially those in China, being directly targeted under sanctions for supporting North Korea, should that be found to be true. And that next step is something that would it would be difficult to be multilateral on, because this is evidence that one nation might be bringing to the Security Council that kind of shows up another Security Council member. Some people would say that the likes of China and Russia have been a problem in terms of getting them on side of the United States. That predates the uh, this administration. It predates the Obama administration as well. Was it a new approach needed? Was the Nikki Haley approach to the UN needed? 
I've always been a fan of status quo. If everything was generally fine, I think we seem to be drawing further and further away from our allies on the Security Council, or at least on some sort of multilateral views. The stage that we're at now, where you know, there was talk in the UN of designating Chinese flag vessels, that fell short. There's been talk for months of designating larger Chinese banks that are found to be supporting North Korea in a material way. That hasn't happened yet. So I, there is... Well, to, to the many Trump supporters that we have listening, there are you know, a lot of people listening to support parts or all of the president's, uh, let's call it, general agenda can, can you state that we will see action on trade? Or is that just a fiction of, of a part of America that wants certitude and action and solution to what they see as decades of grievances? I, I think you have begun to see action. So the CFIUS approval process, the, the quasi-secretive government body that is designed to vet certain deals that have an impact on national security in the technology space. There has been a number of transactions that have been turned down in CFIUS of Chinese acquisition of U.S. companies, be it in yes. technology or financial services. So I, I think as a mechanism, CFIUS is being used more and more to deny trade where historically you wouldn't see and some of these deals turned down. Is it, and I got this, John, this weekend in a, in a question when I was at the vet's third visit to the vet this weekend, um, is, is when, you, when you look at what the president can do, can he do in the Dan Tannenbaum world more executive orders? The important thing to note is executive orders in the sanction space aren't new. Through the Obama and the Bush administration, executive orders have been used historically to drive sanctions agendas forward. Um, sanctions have generally not been legislated like they had with CATSA last summer, which was actually the first time that Congress has enacted What's sanctions. What's CATSA? That's where you get rid of cats in your that, house? Well, so, no, CATSA is... Uh, I don't have the. I can't even remember the acronym because of how okay. long it is. But it's Monday. It's no, Monday. But CATSA yeah. is essentially congressional-driven economic sanctions on uh, on North Korea, on Iran, on Russia, yeah. versus sanctions that were generated by the Treasury and State Department, signed off by the executive through executive order. There is more that can be done through executive order, but that's more of the same. It actually, Obama and Trump and Bush uh, have always used executive order to drive these type of issues. Dan Tanaba, PwC Principal and Brilliant. Global Sanctions Leader. Fantastic. And to Dan's point, Tom, using CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment, just to hold up deals, just to hold them up, never mind say you can't have this deal, just hold them up, keep holding them up. It makes it so difficult to do business with the United States that foreign companies might think twice. And I think that might be the message that CFIUS is trying to change. One, some in particular, I mean, one that I can think of where I think they, three times they applied for approval and just kept letting the deadline lapse. Okay, Dan. Dan Tannenbaum, thank you so much. With PwC. Uh, she has been a shining voice of market economics. She's had the huge advantage of being out of the Midwest, based in Chicago, working over the years for Bank One, Meserode, Diane Swank Economics. And we are honored that this is her first interview with Grant Thornton with someone with a bow tie. It's just very good <laughs> that your first interview was someone with a bow tie. It is. 
It is. Diane Swan, congratulations. <laughs> what I what I find fascinating knowing of Grant Thornton back to I believe it was nineteen twenty four and the merger with Thornton Baker and you know what Grant Thornton does, which is tactical audit and tax work. So the first question McGuire's gotta ask you, Grant Thornton, is this tax bill? Are we gonna make it to April fifteenth? What did you tell the good people of Grant Thornton about the reality <laughs> of their tax legislation? Well, actually, Grant Thornton is also a consulting firm and doing a lot of work with middle market. But yes, the tax bill is clearly important to them. And they've got an incredible group that does policy work. And they know Washington like the back of their hand. So, I mean, the tax bill is, you know, complicated. Unfortunately, there's a lot of glitches that need to be ironed out because it was done so quickly. Um, It is good news, as we've seen already for Wall Street. The question is, how will the loopholes be dealt with? And that is something that Congress still has to deal with going forward as well. And it's one of the uncertainties going forward is what are the unintended consequences of some of the loopholes and how will they close them? Will they be able to close them before we get to actually enacting the tax package and people well, taking advantage of let me, it? Let me bring in John Farrow, LLC, here to help out. <laughs> the, CI, the CIO of Hindsight Capital. Um, Diane, it's always great to catch up with you. We're going to have a really murky earnings season begin with um, the banks on Friday. They're going to have some one-off charges, then they're going to try and give us some guidance as well. When you fold that into the kind of things you just said, how much longer is it going to take to really get a clearer view of how this is going to play out? Well, I actually think it's going to be a lot longer. We are seeing you already baked into the cake, of course, is that companies are going to do well off this. We've seen the one-off bonuses that some companies have announced as they're going to get an advantage from this tax bill. But you made a very good point, and that is many people weren't expecting that they also had to take the charges for repatriation, even though they don't have to repatriate their profits overnight. Those charges are going to be coming right away. And I think that's a very important thing that you know many people hadn't really counted on. And so now we're seeing that going to, that's going to come through, as you said, as a murky season, as people try to go, tease out what the tax bill is, what's real, and where the profits really are. The good news is we are in a synchronous growth global economy. And in fact, we know these are essentially corporate tax cuts is, is going to be an advantage for the corporate sector. The interesting thing as well is the unintended consequences. China's already offered to waive taxes if you locate there, although you have to use all your profits and reinvest them the way they say, which I wonder how many firms will actually do that. A big, big point, Diane. Uh, another question I've got for you. I caught up with Gary Cohn, the, uh, the president's chief economic advisor, formerly of Goldman Sachs, of course. Um, Gary thinks that the market and economists are underestimating the capex boost this tax bill could bring this year. Um, Do you share that view? Well, CapEx has already come back, and so the good news is it's hard to tease out what effects the, the bill actually has itself. It will move some. CapEx forward, and we've added a little bit to growth because of the tax cuts, but the real impact has already begun because we've had synchronous growth and we're running on all cylinders. We've seen durable goods already pick up in the second half of the year. We've seen the manufacturing sector already pick up. So that all happened before the tax bill, and we'll be building on that momentum as we move forward. And I think that's the really important part is fundamentally, it's not just a tax cut that people are making decisions on. They're making decisions on underlying economic fundamentals are better now. Well, are they? Can you can you tell the, the uh, clients of Grant Thornton that the president's right? 
we can have a sustained 3% GDP? Is that the, the outcome and the victory lap ultimately for uh, the fire and fury of this president? Uh, 3% sustained is very difficult to get. Um, and in fact, in the fourth quarter, we think we're going to get about 2.4%, which yeah. is the year at two and a quarter percent or so for the year. So a sustained 3% is very hard to do until you, unless you actually change the equation on productivity growth. And any productivity growth we get off of corporate tax reform will take years to actually um, sort of materialize. We're coming off of very low levels. And we've got against us yeah. the demographics. We've got very little labor force growth. And curbs on immigration have further limited that. So we're going to have a good year. What we worry about is having a good year at the expense of future years because these tax cuts will not pay for themselves and, in fact, will be higher interest rates down the road because of the rising debt and deficit. Don Swank, now the chief economist of Grant Thornton. Freeman writes these terse, terse notes, always rich with uh, content for U.S. Bank. And Eric, uh, you've got a single sentence, which I think is really important in capturing the fear that so many have as we go up, 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 melt up. Where are we? 25294. I'm still not used to that number, Eric. Quote, we are paying close attention to whether risk assets can withstand a sell-off in some of the leader's and strongest performers. That, to me, really captures it. As we all understand, there are these high flyers. What does the rest of the market do if the high flyers correct 8 9 10%? Yeah, that imagery, I think, is important, Tom. It's almost like a, a relay race where can technology, for example, hand the baton off to um, industrials or you know telecom services or real estate, obviously very small sectors. But I think the key thing, and then a lot of people are talking about it, is will there be a rotation out of growth and into value? And while we still think that information technology has some solid fundamental underpinnings, particularly in the back of the tax changes, that there needs to be some leadership stability, if you will. In other words, there needs to be the ability for that baton to be handed off from some of these stronger parts of the domestic and international equity markets to some of the areas that have lagged. So should that occur, which we think it will, that just adds to the, again, a strengthening base, if you will, of the global equity picture. Well, you know, I was wondering about some specific companies, and I know you don't cover specific companies, but the reason I bring them up is because you talk about the ones that are in the headlines. We know about those, but i just give you an example. Vuzix. Now, Vuzix, V-U-Z-I. Yeah, Vuzix. Now, if you go wait, to- Wait a minute. That's a Lisa Bramowitz Pim Fox. No, 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 That's no. That's got no. like yeah. six letters in the symbols. It, the symbol is V-U-Z-I. It's got 50 employees. It's based in Rochester, New York. And guess what? They help make, in fact, they do make the glasses that Amazon is uh, offering and revealing at the- con- consumer electronics show that allow you to wear these glasses, not just for fun and artificial intelligence, but for industrial uses. Imagine glasses that would be able to instantly give you the inventory level in a particular factory, for example, or a warehouse. And so my question to you is, how do you go about finding these, Eric, 
in a world that's dominated, as Tom would say, by these bigger stocks like, you know, uh, Facebook or Alphabet or so on. But Vuzi, Vuzix, I mean, you're talking about a stock now that is already up, you know, another 19% today. It was up 18% on Friday. I think, uh, number one, it being the product of, of Tom and my home region of upstate New York, it, it's certainly a, an interesting area. Um, so Tom and I have, have a fond affinity for anything that comes out of that, that region. But See, uh, I had a look for that one. <laughs> the, uh, you know, it's an important point, Tim. I think you know, one of the areas that you touched on in your comments is companies like that that are focused on increasing and improving productivity, those sort of second and third derivative plays that we, we call them at U.S. Bank, that are not as mainstream, but certainly you know, speak to a, a part of the economy that needs help, and that is offsetting what I know, you know Diane Swank did a really nice job of covering it in the segment before me, just that absence of productivity growth. Some argue it's cyclical, some argue it's, st it's structural, but companies like this help fill a void that basically make us produce stuff more quickly. And so that, you know, that speaks to some of the, the factors that have really driven the global equity market have been growth factors. So companies yeah. that are, again, helping to make up some of that gap, the fact that we're aging as a society, as you know, some of the ingenuity starts to slow down, you have a wave of companies like this that can certainly add to add to earnings. So those second and third derivative plays we think are the next yeah. leg higher in this equity market. Eric Friedman uh, with us with U.S. Bank. And of course, we're uh, looking Western and upstate uh, New York here. We say good morning to all of you nationwide. I mentioned earlier Clinton, New York and Colgate cold, but that's nothing compared to Clarkson University. Paul Travers of Vuzix is out of Canton ATC in Clarkson, which is somewhere south of the North Pole. Then it gets cold up there, to say the least. Let me talk about another uh, bit of creative destruction or innovation in Western New York, and that is the death of Kodak. I mean, Eric, you and I grew up with all of uh, of that. Do you worry about obsolescence among the top 100 or top 500 companies? We do. We think, Tom, it's uh, it, it's certainly a uh, as information travels quickly, and you think about just how quickly things like retail trends can shift. And even things you had a nice segment before about mobile payments and what that means for the future. Uh, obviously, firms like ours, U.S. Bank, we think a lot about the banking industry, what, uh, what the industry looks like out 5, 10, 15 years. So that idea of obsolescence is, is certainly an important one. And clearly, you have some leadership in certain sectors that, that seem to be driving the obsolescence of, of, other, uh, of other companies. But yeah. Again, paying attention to uh, the, that rate of change, if you will, that first and second derivative is really, really important. And one of our themes here, folks, is going to be the technology overlay. Literally, I'll interview the interview and everything that we do. Eric Friedman, thank you so much with UBS uh, Wealth Management. Love what he said there about the reaction at the high flyers come in. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.